Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Back to Basics. Uh, you may have noticed I don't give the episode name uh, verbally because I can never remember what episode we're on, so I'm just skipping that entirely. As usual, I am Pastor Don, and joining me as usual is our magnificent and wonderful co-host, Horning. Hello. So, <clears throat> last week we had our prelude to the flood. We talked about Nephilim and all that uh, uh, craziness there. And today we're going to start getting into the flood proper. For those of you who are following along and playing the home game, uh, we will be looking at Genesis chapter 6. We'll be looking at the second half starting from verse 9 all the way out to the end. Um, you know, biblical headings not really being a thing. Most of them have some kind of heading break here. Uh, the NRSVUE, which I'm using, says Noah pleases God, but probably could be any number of things for you. In any case, we're going to be starting from verse 9. Uh, Courtney, do you want to read it or do you want me to? Yeah, sure. I got no problem with that. All righty. Take it away. All right. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you were to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. It's width, width 50 cubits. And it's height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and put the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For my part, I am going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds, according to their kinds and of the animals, according to their kinds of every creeping thing of the ground, according to its kind, two of every kind shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every kind of food that is eaten and store it up and it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. There all we go. Right. So we've got as one of the classic usual, Sunday school stories. Classic Sunday school text. But as is usual for a classic Sunday school text, the text itself is a little brother's grim, whereas the Sunday school is a little Disney. Yeah. Um, so we got a bit going on here. Um, you know, we've got all the bit about Noah, you know, a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Uh, Noah walked with God. Um, what do you make of that? Um, I just took it to be metaphorical, like that he followed God and like prayed a lot. And mm -hmm. Okay. What, um, whatever, whatever, uh, like intense religion at that time consisted of. Yeah. It's interesting that when we read this, we tend to apply kind of a modern moralistic understanding of what 
blameless and righteous means. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of epic foreshadowing, but if we jump ahead to Genesis in chapter nine, we get uh, drunk Noah passed out buck naked in his tent. Like, <laughs> this is not like, that, like you're, 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 shall we say, hyper-conservative interpreters of the Bible might, if they thought very slightly, find these two images somewhat contradictory. Um, so what do you think righteous and blameless in his generation uh, means? Hmm. Um, well, the righteous part I don't find is difficult to reconcile because righteous doesn't strike me as a synonym for perfect, but blameless hmm. is a little, little odder. Um, I could him and ha about it, but I know you know the right answer. So Well, I... Again, dealing with the text so ancient, the term right answer in and of itself is problematic. <clears throat> but um, I'm with my uh, interpretive text here that I've mentioned before, How to Read the Bible by James Kugel, um, brings up an interesting uh, interpretive approach that people have used for years. Um, and it harkens back to Genesis 6, chapter, or Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, uh, which I've got in front of me. I'll read it. It says, the Lord, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. Now, it was from last week. Uh, we didn't talk too much about that then. But there's a distinction here that interpreters tend to make. Because back then, the Lord says, my spirit shall not abide in mortals forever. Unassumed, therefore, they'll live no longer than 120 years. Now, uh, Noah clocks in at the end around 9.50. So more like the... Uh, more like, more the, like the, the... Previous uh, generations. Exactly. So when they talk about righteous and blameless, um, those are... The word choice himself is interpretation, uh, even in the Hebrew, like not, not even counting the English, but word choice is itself interpretation of, you know, some thing. So here whatever quality it is that Noah has may be assumed to be a spiritual quality, some sort of uh, through line back, that through line back to Adam. This is why the begats that we talked about were so important is because Noah still maintains that through line back to Adam. In fact, if you wanted to get uber scientific about it, you might even make the interpretive claim that um, being righteous and blameless and godlike so as to still have the spirit of God abiding within you is not too different from, say, the mutant X gene in the X-Men comics, you know, except instead of, you know, laser eyes or weird telepathy or turning into, you know, a giant blue monkey on occasion, you wind up with, you know, uh, connectivity to God and extra long life. And so the, the that seems like a very specific and weird interpretation. Is it the only one or is it just one? That is one of the more prominent ones, actually. Now, I've taken that to a more extreme degree by making it genetic and things like that. But the general idea here is that Noah was. So it's the accepted idea and you're just being playful with it. Have you met me? Yeah, no, I'm just saying, but I'm just kind yeah. of weirdly shocked that that's the accepted idea. The general interpretation like, is that Noah was the last one who still had or allowed, depending on which way we look at it, the spirit of God to remain within it. Um, and that's why Noah was picked. And it's also why he was still living, you know, several centuries as opposed to everything else. 
which is awfully convenient because he had to basically become Neo Adam and repopulate anyway. Yeah, creating another uh, genetic bottleneck too. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of those. And of course, modernly, we know that, what's it like 2,500 or something like that is the absolute minimum to maintain enough genetic diversity to propagate the species for humans. Yeah. So, you know, one dude and his kids is not enough in order to, to make that work, given what we know of science. I do, I do wonder and kind of think that it probably is related to an actual historical uh, population bottleneck, though. Again, we talked a little bit about how pretty much, I don't know about every, but a, a shocking number give, of countries. Let me give you this. Uh, I'm going to actually... I'm going to actually quote here. This is this is my favorite little record scratch moment in early biblical history stuff. Um, I'm going to quote here directly from How to Read the Bible by James Kugel here. Um, and it says in, in a section entitled A Startling Discovery, it says, then late in the year 1872, the English Orientalist uh, George Smith of the British Museum read a paper before the Society of Biblical Archaeology. The paper, The Chaldean Account of the Deluge, created an immediate sensation among his listeners and soon in the general public as well. In his paper, Smith reported on the discovery in the ruins of ancient Nineveh, now in Iraq, of a group of cuneiform tablets that contained a story very similar to the biblical account of the flood. Smith had access to only part of what was to later be known as the Epic of Gilgamesh, but soon other parts were published and evidence of similar accounts of a flood also appeared in other ancient sources a somewhat fragmentary Sumerian version, as well as a separate Babylonian and Assyrian text, uh, the Atrahasis epic. Uh, suddenly it became clear that the story of a great flood had been known all over ancient, ancient Mesopotamia and even beyond its borders. Yeah. So that was- I mean, like er, early cultures in the Americas had like flood myths, like mm -hmm. it's everywhere, yeah. which I really, I, like ever since I was a kid, I was like, so that that happened right <laughs> like now maybe not exact exactly like you know i take issue with the literalism possible here but i yeah, will i will raise seem to have some sort of like human racial memory of this. i agree i totally agree i will say that archaeologically speaking uh kugel says that as far as geologists can tell no significant inundation has ever occurred in that area of the Mesopotamian. However, I would take issue with that because I am presuming, admittedly without uh, entire evidence, that the geologists to whom Google refers here are looking at a very specific date range and not like way much farther back in time where such an oral history might be dating to. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, around about four to 8,000 BC, there probably wasn't any big floods in that region. Uh, but I'm betting this probably goes back quite a bit longer than that. Yeah, I, I feel like four to eight thousand BC is going on a creationist time, like a literalist creationist time yeah, scale, it, which is obviously not right. I'm not. It's, super it's demonstrably well not right. Yeah, I'm not super well versed in these literal specifics of uh, you know uh, biblical creationists here. I believe they think it's like sixty-seven hundred BC is creation or something like that. Um, I think, but again. It's ridiculous. I want to say they think that the earth is about 10,000 years old or something like that. Most of the ones I've heard put it between 64 and 67 BC. Um, but I think, I, 
think. I think I've seen a couple that put it closer to 7,000, but I don't think I've well, seen it. Well, then you slap on another couple thousand for AD, and that's getting you close, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Again, we're not biblical creationists here. We don't believe that, you know, it's a literal accounting that way. But, you know, we do, in fact, see now um, since the 1870s when these discoveries started popping off that, holy crap, there was definitely a thing going on here. Now, the interesting question, and this has been a big back and forth in the biblical community, is, is this a shared history or is this a shared literature? Hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you right off the bat, Google doesn't give us a clear answer on that because he's an historian and not necessarily a biblical interpretationist. Um, but if you look at like, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he gives a big chunk of uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh right here in the book. It contains narrative and structural details to the story that are similar to Noah's account as well. So not just there was a flood and it happened, but like you have, in his, in his case, it's, you know, sending out a raven to check and it comes back. He says, another raven and check to come back. And then, blah, 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 and then now, oh, it brought back an olive branch. Yeah, so like there's story beats that appear in the same as well, um, which raises several different questions about whether this is a shared history or a shared literature. What do you think? Well, I inconclusive, honestly, because the fact that there's similar beats between stories, like this is something that people have used a lot to just be like, okay, well, the whole Bible isn't real. Because if you look at, you know, the story of Jesus, you can look at, you know, Egyptian stories and mm -hmm. stories from other cultures in the area. And it's the same thing. It's the same set of beats. It's just, you've inserted different characters and changed some details. Um, to me, that strikes more, as, I mean, it could be that, you mm -hmm. know, but to me, it's always struck more as like, you hear a story told when especially when something is passed along word of mouth yeah yeah i feel like and i'm i don't have degrees in this crap i've got a i've got a liberal arts degree from community college that i am not an expert this is my opinion but this is what you have me here for my goofy that's where opinion. we start right um i think that it's pretty easy to borrow storytelling elements for telling your own story mm -hmm. from someone else's story I think you see it a lot in like modern storytelling and it may like, why would that just be a new invention? Especially yeah. when it would have been a lot harder to, to trace along, right. you know, that when a great storyteller in some culture heard this, this tale from another culture and yeah. was a, a part of it really hit home. And it's like, that's a good way to get that idea across. Exactly. Maybe, maybe it got in, incorporated. And again, it just, I want to couch this in, I know nothing, Don't. effectively nothing about like, I will let, let me finish my sentence though, about like traditional Jewish word of mouth storytelling going back like millennia. No, obviously <laughs> I just, to me, doesn't seem like we have enough evidence to say one way or the other with that well don't sell yourself short there because your your average a religious historian uses this as as proof that the bible and other texts basically just swipe swipe the story they thought was cool and put it in for some sort of moralistic purpose well, there's um, definitely swiping going on but i think it could be storytelling yeah. devices your, rather than exactly your approach makes way more sense given what we know of you know he, old hebrew storytelling styles but also 
uh, just in general how humans work. Like that is a much better explanation than your standard kind of historical exchange. They might not have even realized they were doing it. I mean, think about how many times you hear about like a comedian getting in trouble with another comedian for like stealing jokes. And it's a matter yeah. of, they didn't even realize they were doing it. They thought that they came up with that, you know, like, or even like just weird synchronicity stuff, like yeah. without going into details, um, somebody I know used to make like videos in like high school and college and stuff like that for funsies and for class projects and stuff. And like, <laughs> there was a particular uh, plot element like that came up exactly years later in a fiction story that hadn't been written yet that we could not possibly have seen. And it was the exact same thing. And it was a weirdly specific thing. It was mm -hmm. the vortex manipulator from Doctor Who. It yeah. wasn't, had been called that in, in these videos, but it was the same exact dang thing. Right, right. Um, now, you know, we could take this in a different, more meta direction too. Um, and this is something I have kind of always felt might be, be true in a God-authored reality, is that I often wonder if, there isn't a narrative quality to reality. Um, that yeah, I've had to get myself away from that idea. It's too easy to start get to thinking that you're the protagonist you're of the main story character. And we're not. Yeah, that is definitely our... just here by, well, not necessarily by accident, but we're all mm -hmm. just here. Yeah, and I I, th I think that if you balance with the assumption that you're not necessarily <laughs> the character but a character that there does tend to be a bit of a narrative uh, aspect. I don't say like the, like the entire thing's a, a handcrafted narrative uh, specifically for you. That's getting too into evangelical theology for me. But there does appear to be a narrative quality to the way uh, reality happens. And now I will preface that by saying whether that is a God-authored attribute or whether that is an artifact of the fact that our reality is based on interaction with other humans and we're all driven by narrative impulses, uh, who knows? But you look at the biblical story here to bring it back to that, are we seeing these echoes because uh, people were swapping stories or are we seeing because they're independent stories that share narrative attributes because that's just how reality works? No idea. But it's fun to think about. Fun thought experiments yeah. brought to you by the <laughs> church question mark. <laughs> hey, if, if, if nothing else, we're here to make you think. Um, so what else do we got Refreshing. in here that looks interesting? All right, let me look at the scripture. Like we're actually- I mean, We obviously got study. blueprints here. Um, uh, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Why? No. <laughs> like, why? Like, the earth didn't do anything wrong. Okay, it says something about, you know, the whole earth is corrupted because mm -hmm. people are terrible. And, yeah. like, and again, as I mentioned last time, this all reeks pretty hard of, <laughs> are we keeping, are we trying to keep the language PG here? Ish. You know. Okay, I messed up. <laughs> like, I screwed this up. Like, Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We all slip up. No, no. I'm saying that this whole story reeks of ice. Oh, I see up what you Yeah, yeah. Flushing it. Let's wipe the board clean. Start again. Yeah. No. Um, like the ancient interpretation approach to this has been that 
creation as originally designed was kind of a lion lays down with the lamb sort of thing. And the sin of humans spread beyond humans into the creation that they were meant to uh, have stewardship over. Uh, so when we get to the, the point of God saying, okay, rocks fall, everybody dies, um, we're dealing with God saying, yeah, it's infected everything. Kind of like evangelical theology in the modern church. That's a discussion for later. Um, but yeah, so God is making the case here, according to traditional interpretation, that yeah, you humans are terrible and you've poisoned everything else. Uh, which, of course, goes into, um, I know I keep bringing it up, but I do actually find it a very interesting take on it. The Russell Crowe Noah movie, uh, which portrays- You make me watch this. I, I think you should. Like, it is not always a traditional approach to things, but it does have a very unique approach that I think is worth considering. One of the things they do is they portray everybody but Noah as hardcore kind of like industrial capitalists, like big on metalworking, build on building and big on poisoning the environment. Like, you know, an entire race of Sarumans, Sarumen, uh, something like that. Sarumaruman? <laughs> um, so the idea being that humankind is poisoning the land and poisoning the air and forcing animals out of their habitats to behave in ways that they don't normally do. And God's like, I got to kill it all and start over. Um, which honestly, if nothing else from this section of Genesis, that interpretive ideology should really resonate with us today. Something else that strikes me is like, okay, well, what's the point? If he's going to kill it all and start over, what was the point of the ark? Like, you're going to kill all the animals, but make sure that the animals make it. <laughs> yeah, again, um, there are... Plot holes! This yeah. thing! Well, it's not meant to be Lord of the Rings, thank you very much. Um, but, no, we get here, and I'm trying to find exactly where it was, but there was an interpretive argument here that presents the idea that what is going on with the animals, uh, first off, in, in, the, in this verse here, uh, no, it's, it's in the next chapter, uh, but Noah's instructed to take animals uh, specifically in a pattern that is related to how animal sacrifices work. So that the original bequest was, yeah, take enough animals with you so you've got something to sacrifice on the other side. Uh, because that's how you that's how you people do worship but the, uh, the text says like two of everything yeah and again and this, like there were specifically animals that were considered unclean to sacrifice right yeah and this and is where it's on the ark right <laughs> it's this, so is where it gets, this is where it gets weird between chapter six seven and eight is that we have differing commands given by god to noah but when we kick it back to the hebrew god giving commands is the God who is giving commands is named differently in different instances. Like in one case, it's Elohim, which is the generic term for God. In other cases, it's the, the tetragrammaton, the tetragrammaton, uh, Y-H-V-H, um, the name of God, uh, which those are often used by different authors. So we have indication here that we have multiple stories of the, of the flood that are coming together, which is why we're probably getting contradictory things. I hate to grind this to a halt, but Tetragrammaton, you're going to need to run that one by me. 
Tetragrammaton is a term that refers to the original uh, name of God. Um, now, are you familiar with that at all? No. Yeah, our no, God. I, actually, I had had it drilled into me that God was the name of God. I am. I am that I am, and that's like. Ah, yeah, your church uh, missed a step on that. God has an actual name. Did you know that? No. Um, God's name. Well, God has a name. We don't actually know what it, it is. It feels forbidden, like the name of the doctor or it something. It actually is. It kind of is. Um, the name was given as YHV8, which you may notice has no vowels in it. Now, the reason being is that ancient Hebrew didn't have any vowels, uh, at least not in written form. Like the vowels were, um, you, if you read ancient Hebrew, which I'm sure you totally do, um, vowels are indicated with kind of dots and dashes above or below the letter, kind of the same way that Tolkien does in his Elvish script. Um, yeah. It's where he got the idea. Uh, but the reason for that is because the vowels don't actually exist in the written text. Um, so the name of God was given as YHVH, but nobody writ the vowels down anywhere. And that was a secret knowledge that was passed like throughout the priestly family for a while until it got forgotten. Um, so it is presumably some combination of YHVH with the correct vowels, but we don't know, uh, what that combination might be. Is that where, is that where Yahweh is thought to come from? Yahweh is the general interpretation of what that might sound like. Now, one last little piece of, of interest, when you take Yahweh, uh, that's what happens when you add letters using the vowels as they are in Hebrew. When you add letters using the vowels as they present in Latin, you get J-H-V-H uh, -H, um, instead Jehovah. of Y-H-V-H, which is where we get Jehovah. So Jehovah is Yahweh in Latin. Um, but anyway, we've gone a little bit off track with our discussion of the fact Sorry, that- Sorry, I just, that kind, of, that kind of stuff fascinates me. Yeah, let's let's get yeah. back to the topic at hand. No, no, it's like these sorts of divergences. I hope people find them interesting as well. But yes, uh, God does have a name, but in this passage here, we're getting multiple names of God. So we talked back in the beginning, literally in the beginning, uh, about the term Elohim, literally meaning God in a weirdly dual sense. That's used here. Uh, we get- uh, YHVH as well. Um, and so when we get to English translations, it's all like God or the Lord said this, and we associate them because oh, talking about the same dude, that's how our language works. Not necessarily so in the ancient Hebrew. Um, uh, Are we talking like different aspects? Could be different aspects. Um, it's also entirely possible, and this is really stretching it, that like, in this case, Elohim might refer to a lesser God. Um, that's been one more out there interpretive approach here too. Generally speaking, the, the truth of it is that there are multiple stories being combined here with different authors because the name that you choose for God is kind of like an author's signature. Like that tells you that like one author only sticks to, to that one name usage in a lot of these old Hebrew texts. So the fact that we're getting a back and forth switcheroo as to name usage tells us we've got stories by multiple authors that are being fed together. Uh, what that means, I don't know, but that's why we have contradictions. All right. So, All right. do we have anything else? I know we're going long at this point. Do we? Yeah, have anything we're else? definitely going long, but that is cool because we got stuff to talk about. But I think we've covered the most of it for this chapter, don't you? Yeah, I'm just take taking a quick run around. 
Yeah. After this, it just um, take two of everything. Uh, two of yeah, the measurement stuff is measurement. all very academic. Um, yeah, all, all academic unless you're trying to, for some reason, build a tourist attraction in the South. Um, but hey, nobody in their right mind would do that. Um, in any case, let's go ahead and stop here for, for this, uh, this episode. We're going to kick it to Chapter 7 next week for some uh, fun, some fanciness and some flood um so we're gonna we're gonna get to the kill all humans portion of our bible study which will be fun um and uh in the meantime oh uh like share and subscribe yeah that thing that thing which we always want to encourage the people to what be doing comment and tell us if you have any questions about you know that we didn't cover or any comments that you thought of while you were watching the video oh, yeah throw it uh, out tag comments. a friend Tag a friend, share. God, sharing this thing on Facebook is what gets us views, man. I'll tell you that. Yeah. The more this sucker gets passed around, the the better things are for us. Like, share, subscribe. Literally, share. That's really helpful. Basically, if you think this is worth viewing, try and get more eyeballs on it because it'll help us keep doing it. Exactly. And if you have questions, like she, like the lady said, comment down below or uh, hop onto the Discord server because we're doing a lot of talking about a lot of this stuff uh, a lot of the time. So come join us there. Links for everything are down below <clears throat> in the description. Uh, so you can get a hold of us. You can do whatever. Uh, but most importantly, I uh, hope you enjoyed our Bible study. And we will see you all for some uh, very wet and wild adventures next week. Bye, right. everybody. Later.